Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Great to be together again on the Sabbath day. Welcome to our guests and great to have everybody here. Last week, as you'll recall if you were here in Burlington for Sabbath, uh, Pastor Watson spoke to us on the massive changes going on in the world scene and how things are playing out just perfectly as the Bible has prophesied. He went into some great detail on that, and his message at the end, despite all that we read and all that we try to compare back and forth in prophecy, was to get right with God. That is our mission, to get right with God, especially during the Feast of Weeks, this seven-week period that we are two weeks into. And he finished by saying, don't be disillusioned because the good guys win. Don't be disillusioned. The good guys will win. This is certainly in complete accordance and agreement with what we've been studying here over the last couple of years. It was especially interesting, you recall, when we had our after-sermon discussion where he talked and mentioned the possibility that perhaps we've been looking in the wrong direction and how that could lead to complacency. Then he turned to our kids and asked them what it was like for them in school. What are you experiencing in school? And he asked each of them for their feedback and got some very interesting responses from everyone. Sometimes, sometimes people don't like hearing the truth and would prefer that it just to turn our back, put our head in the sand, and that it just goes away. Hopefully we're not like that. Hopefully we're not like that. That's why throughout the Gospels, Christ admonishes us to watch. We can break down those, those scriptures that talk about watching many ways. One of those reasons is to pay attention to what's going on around us. We've heard from this very pulpit over the course of the last couple of months about this concept called cultural Marxism and how the shift around the world in ideology that Satan is using to take aim at God's people. Some of these things seem far away. Some we see what's going on in the world around us and we hear talk of France and we hear talk of Britain and we hear talk of this place and that. It doesn't feel yet like it's quite so close. We hear things, but it doesn't feel as close. We haven't had bombings like we've seen over in Europe. We've had some things, but it doesn't always feel as close to home as, as it is in other places. While this has been going on around us for many decades, it is something that has been quietly going on. We, this concept of cultural Marxism, unless you study it, you probably haven't heard too much about it. You can kind of see ideologies change in governments. But to hear it described the way, the way we've heard it described in the last few months is starting to hit home a little bit. Our leaders today are a product of this shifted cultural focus. And what we're seeing, and we're going to take a look in a few minutes here, that they are now gaining a stronghold in our schools and our governments. 
the two institutions that affect us the most. We can turn a blind eye if we want to, to the news that's going on over in Europe or over in Asia or wherever this is going. But our government and our schools here in Canada and in Ontario and in this region, that actually affects us today. That's not to say these, these things aren't. I'm not, absolutely not saying that. We are seeing, we are seeing it slowly and picking up speed, migrate this way. And if you look at places in Detroit, it's getting ever closer to home. But this, cultural, this concept of cultural Marxism that we've been, we've been hearing about is, getting, is around us now. It is right underneath our noses. Things are changing, and we sometimes don't even know about it. We can look around the globe and see a world in transition, which we heard talked about last week. Unfortunately, we don't need to look overseas anymore to see this transition. Our country and our province is changing right under our noses. Bill 89 is a piece of legislation that the Ontario government has brought to the floor. In the erroneously titled, listen to how they've described it, here's how they've titled the act, Supporting Children youth, and families. So take that into consideration. This Bill 89 is to support children, youth, and families. It has gone through two readings. Two readings. It is still in the process of getting getting passed. But let's take some time to get some perspective on what is happening around us. Before we start the video, for those of you who may be listening to this message on the website, we're about to listen to a 10-minute video that can be found on YouTube entitled, Say No to Bill 89, Leave Our Kids Alone. So before, if you want some context of where this message is going, pause the message now, go over to YouTube, and find the, doc, find the, the video called, Say No to Bill 89, Leave Our Kids Alone. So if we could start the video, it will be about 10 minutes, and then we'll come back. Good things grow in Ontario. Once upon a time, it was a slogan and music jingle that evoked wholesome emotions that just about everyone across the province knew. But today, it's not so good to grow in Ontario, or to grow up in Ontario, to be precise. That's because in this province, social experimenter-in-chief Kathleen Wynne and her Liberal government are your co-parents. And we do work hand-in-hand with these families because we co-parent, because we co-parent. In this Canadian province, our ruling class believes that our children are their property. It's why, despite mass parental protests, Premier Kathleen Wynne doubled down on her radical sex ed curriculum, a sex ed program that begins for kids as young as five years old and introduces them to ideas like made-up gender theory and, and anal intercourse before they're even out of grade school. I mean, Ontario's Liberal government loves co-parenting so much, they've even gone through great lengths passing actual legislation to remove the words mother and father from not only our birth certificates, but from all provincial legislation altogether. But now, they're actually taking it one step further because apparently semantics and the classroom, they just weren't enough. Now, Kathleen Wynne's liberal government is making a totally unprecedented intrusion into your home. 
Now, if you haven't already heard of Bill 89, then you're going to want to pay close attention, but please brace yourselves. Bill 89 codifies the Ontario government's belief that children belong to the state, not their parents. If passed, Bill 89 will repeal and replace the existing Child and Family Services Act. That's an act of hugely significant import, governing everything from child protection services and foster care all the way to adoption. However, rather than promoting welfare as it purports to do, Bill 89 is a totalitarian bill, giving the state incredible powers to seize Ontario children from their families for the sake of gender ideology, while preventing religious parents from ever adopting or becoming foster parents. Now, the bill is 329 sections long. It's a really hefty bill, and there is a lot that is wrong with it. But if you will, just let me show you some of the most disturbing and subversive parts of this proposed legislation. So, so the first thing that you're looking for when it comes to this bill is what makes it different from the act that it seeks to replace, right? And well, the first thing that jumps out at you is religion is totally erased and gender ideology is now introduced. In the sections concerning matters to be considered in determining the best interests of the child, the religious faith in which the child is being raised is deleted as a matter to be considered. Instead, the following list of factors is included. Race, ancestry, place of origin, color, ethnic origin, citizenship, family diversity, disability, the amorphously termed creed, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Now, if you're not already yelling at your screen, let me explain why this change in phrasing really matters. One of the reasons can be found in these sections right here. Bill 89 includes a lengthy description of a child in need of protection, i.e. where child protective services intervention ought to take place. Now, among that long list includes the description of a child who is at risk of suffering mental or emotional health. Now, one whose parent does not provide, quote, treatment or access to treatment is thus defined as a child in need of protection. So a thought experiment to make this legislation clear. Little Tommy comes home from his third grade class in Ontario, where he's just learned about all the new and made up genders du jour. He then says, hey, mommy, I'm a girl now. I don't like my penis anymore. I want boobies and new pronouns. Now, as a parent in today's Ontario, while you have no say in your child's classroom, you do have a say in your own home. But under Bill 89, you lose that right. In fact, according to Section 73, if you fail to provide the treatment or access to treatment that your child now demands, you are working against his or her interests, which include gender identity and gender expression, as outlined in Section 1. And so since your child is now considered a child in need of protection in the eyes of the state, according to Section 34, the Children's Aid Society must now investigate you. And should the children's aids worker, who, by the way, is neither police nor an, uh, a doctor, should the children's aid worker simply follow the law, Bill 89, and find, yes, little Tommy is in need of protection by definition of the law because you have failed to use his new pronouns that he demands and provide him with hormone blockers, then, according to Bill 89, a court is to issue orders with respect to care for your child, which can include, but is not limited to, 
Placing your child in the care or custody of another person subject to the supervision of the society. Or placing your child in interim or long-term society care. Now, an important asterisk here. Bill 89 also adds this line, including the words, wherever possible, in describing child services interventions. This is a radical break from the past and a clear signal that children's aid society intervention is to be more readily provided and will not be presumed to be disruptive. But back to little Tommy. You're probably thinking at this point, now that my child's been taken from me, where will he end up? I want to see him again, but in the event I don't, I pray his foster or adoptive parents are going to be good people. Well, they might be good people, but they're probably not going to be religious people. In the parts of Bill 89 which describe adoption and adoption, adoptive licensing, again, religious faith is struck out of consideration for what is relevant for the child. But don't you worry, gender identity and gender expression are there. Translation, if little Tommy was raised in a home where Christmas and Easter were celebrated and church was part of his Sunday schedule, that won't matter when looking to place him in an adoptive home. And woe to any adoptive parent who won't indulge his new pronouns and hormone-blocking hopes. Now that Tommy's decided to identify as a girl under Bill 89, it would seem, when it comes to who can foster or adopt children, well, all parents are not considered equal. And another small asterisk here, if, if you think creed and religion are the same thing in this bill, think again. Take this example. According to Bill 89, the parent of a child in care retains the right to direct the child's or young person's education and upbringing in accordance with the child or young person's creed. That replaces the phrase to direct the child's education and religious upbringing. Translation, Bill 89's use of the amorphous language is not without reason. Rather, its aim is a colossal reduction in parental authority. In the new phrasing, the parent's authority is instead limited by the child's creed, or whatever the child tells the care worker their creed is or is not. Finally, in the event you weren't already convinced Bill 89 is in and of itself breathtaking in its embedded totalitarianism, well, it gets worse. At any point, the minister in charge of the portfolio can make this liberal government's home invasion more sweeping and more severe. That's because Bill 89 gives the minister massive regulatory powers in which at any point and for any reason, the minister can create regulations governing how service providers making decisions with respect to matters of your child's gender identity and expression in your home are, are to even be taken into account and accordingly how to conduct their jobs. Folks, I was floored the first time I read this bill. Bill 89 is an un unprecedented government intrusion into Ontario homes. It is an unprecedented government intrusion into decisions about how families wish to raise their children. It, it pushes gender identity onto Ontario children. It makes unscientific gender theory the law of our homes. It removes protective language surrounding a minor's religious faith and it and persecutes adoptive and foster parents of faith. And, and perhaps most disturbingly, it grants the state sweeping new powers to remove children from their parents' and guardians' custody. And yet, Bill 89 just passed its second reading in the Ontario legislature without a single dissenting vote. 
even opposition parties whose job it is to oppose government legislation, something I must have misunderstood, even they have consigned under this totalitarian bill that turns our province's children into pawns in Kathleen Wynne's political absolute if I didn't see it myself and if I didn't go look this up this is not some radical country in Europe or in Asia um, this is not this is right here the people that you pay your taxes to the people that govern our lives and not a single single anyone in government stood up to say this might be wrong we might not want to go this route their job, they've told us, is to co-parent. Co-parent. I'm offended. I'm offended. And this is not a getting off on a political spectrum here. This is cultural. This is society. This is what we're in the middle of here in our lives. A sex education program that starts teaching heinous acts. Acts we should never, should never even come out of our lips before they exit elementary school there's no such thing as father or mother will be on our birth certificates gender ideology replaces religious faith in the matter of consideration of both child safety and adoption the parents authority get this is limited to what the child says their parents authority can be I'm, I'm speechless. This was sent to me by uh, a member from Ottawa, a friend. Uh, Brother Peter sent this to me. If he didn't send it to me, I wouldn't have believed him. I, you barely hear about Bill 89. In fact, I never heard of it until he sent this to me. Uh, and sometimes I think 24-hour news numbs us to this, and we just stop paying attention, which is unfortunate. But not a single MPP voted against this. Twice. They had two opportunities, and no one stood up. Proverbs 14, verse 12. We've read, we've read scriptures, we've read scriptures for years, decades, however long you've been in the faith, however long your parents have been teaching you. And we know them by rote, and we can repeat them. And, but the closer, the, the more the world trans, transitions, the more these scriptures jump off the page at us. Proverbs 14, verse 12, and you've, you can probably spit this back without even having to read it. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The, the further we go, the more Satan grabs a hold of society, the more these scriptures jump off the page. And that proverb was so important, Solomon said it twice repeated it later in chapter 16. It's becoming more prophetic than proverbial these days. Thankfully, amongst us here, our kids have not been affected by that. We saw, again in the Bible study today, we see this, and then we are witness to this, what we saw in the, the youth study. This is evident in their interaction last week with Bill, the back and forth. There was no way... And I grew up in the church that I could have interacted or I ever did interact 
the way our young people do. And quite frankly, how they interact with us each week. In fact, our three youngest ones are closing in on the end of their public school careers in the next couple of years. So this probably won't affect us here amongst this group of people the way it's written here. We're probably a little bit past that. But this is why the Feast of Weeks is so important. This is why it's important for us to build off of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to work on our habits, to put on the mind of Christ, to prepare to rehearse the events of the receipt of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. Because our nation and our province and our way of life right here is changing, and we cannot let it change us. Some of this stuff is so absurd, if you brought it to people's attention, they would say, oh, you know, that's just in there. They're not going to apply that. You're, you're, you're overreacting. But we overreacted in 1995 with some of the other legislation that came through, and no one would ever think that what has become the norm today, that was extreme and you're overreacting. Give this bill 10 years, and we will have lost complete control. And you young people want to have kids, and I want you to have kids. I want grandkids. I can't fathom that. I can't fathom that. Earlier this afternoon, during the youth study, we took a passage of Islamic faith and looked at what was so wrong with it. Today, I'd like to take this bill that is, unless somebody, unless more than one person stands up and says something in the next number of months, this will become law. It is so dangerous to society. We need to look at why it is so dangerous and why, ultimately, it's going to happen. It's, it's, it's going to happen. Why we must be so focused and resolute in our faith. It can't change us. It's going to tell us we need to change. It can't change us. Our survival depends on it. To our young people, challenge all of you that to, to whatever you hear from your school, grade it against the scriptures, just like you just like just like you did in that exercise today in the, in the study. So let's take a look at what is so wrong with this bill and why the answers to what is wrong with it are right here. And we can never, ever, ever forget them. We can never, ever forget them. And it's easy to say, oh, I won't forget. These pe- Our society was built on the Bible, and it has been completely forgotten. Completely forgotten. Let's go to Genesis 2. The root cause of this, and you've heard us say it before, but if we don't keep saying it, someone may forget. The root cause of this insanity is the breakdown of the family unit. The breakdown of the family unit. Let's see why I mean that. Let's go to Genesis 2. Adam here is settled into Eden. He's familiar with his surroundings. He's beginning to understand his role as vice regent, as caretaker, as leader here on this earth. All of this earth placed under his authority. Verse 18 tells us, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. 
And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. That was his responsibility. He has authority. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam, amongst all of his getting used to things in Eden, getting used to his position of authority and getting used to his position as caretaker, the very first thing God did, the very first thing he did after all of that creation was create marriage and family. It's the very first thing. So to say that marriage and family is the basic institution of society, we have our proof right here. You don't need to go, you don't need to, go to a textbook. You don't need to go to a psychology book. You come right here. The very first thing God did was create marriage and family and said, you shall go, leave your parents, and go find someone and build a family. Marriage and family is the basic unit of structure of our society because it was the very first thing God did, the very first thing. We can say it is because it is. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 7. We'll continue looking at this breakdown of the family unit. Second Corinthians 7. Second Corinthians six. Whew. Hate when I type in the wrong fat fingers type in the wrong thing on my, my notes. Second Corinthians six, verse eleven. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Part of this if-then statement of being in covenant with God. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Despite Bill 89's exclusion of this word, faith 
is central to our relationships. God says so right here. In our closest relationships, faith matters. Gender identity, I guess it matters if, you, if there is such a thing. I mean, man and woman, I guess, that, I guess it does matter, but it shouldn't need to be written down. Faith is central to our relationships. A healthy relationship, we're talking our closest relationships, should be between believers. Should be between believers. Because faith matters. God is central to Christian relationships. Because being holy, which we've talked about recently, matters. That's why he connects this concept of being unequally yoked with these scriptures that talk about holiness. But this wasn't a new concept Paul was bringing forth. This wasn't something Paul just dreamed up. Let's go back to Exodus 34. Faith, never forget, faith is central to relationships, your closest relationships. There can be a, somebody can write a law and just omit that word and forget to write it in. That doesn't change what is reality. That doesn't change what is truth. And please don't forget that. Exodus 34, verse 10. Here, with the Ten Commandments needing to be re-etched in new tablets, God reminds Israel as he gives them his commandments again, the sanctity of marriage. And it's, it's appropriately placed as Moses here cuts the tablets and, and they are rewritten. Verse 10, God said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as has not been seen in all the earth, nor in any nation. I will do wondrous things for you. And all the people among you, among whom you are, shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. I will do great things. Just follow, follow what I need you to follow. Behold, I am driving out from, from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land we are going. You can only be in one relationship. It can be with God or it can be with the inhabitants. Lest it be a, a snare in your midst. Lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. This is heavy, deep language here. But God saw what happened, as we talked about in the youth study. God saw what happened in that time frame that's described for us in Genesis 4 through 11. The, the depravity of the human mind, when left without God, can come up with the most vile and heinous things. And God is saying, don't get involved in that. Don't get involved in that. And how, he, in giving them the law, he stressed protection from foreign practices and how this all starts with the marriage covenant. This all starts with the marriage covenant. He repeats this in Deuteronomy 7 
he needed to. That generation had died off in their wanderings. The second generation of young Israelites are about to enter the promised land, and God repeats, repeats the same admonition. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. Does God have an issue here with these people? I thought we heard that he loves all people and wants them to be in his kingdom. It wants him to be in his kingdom. Now he's telling them to destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not, you shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their son, their daughter for your son. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Marriage and the family is so key that God continues as he gives his law to point them to the fact that it must remain pure. They must remain pure. Not to allow these other ideas to creep in. Because without God, those ideas change us. We become different. We become different. First Kings 11, we'll see that. This continual breakdown, and we, again, we've talked about it before, but if we don't keep repeating these things and going back to them, Bill 89 becomes the, becomes the end result. And we'll read it, and it'll be, you know, the safety of our children, and, and that, you know what, I, how can you say no to safety of children? How can, you, how can you say no unless you dig in and read and realize it has nothing to do with safety of children? It has to do with control and power and taking that away from you as parents. First Kings 11. The split, what we're going to read here, and we've studied this. We're coming up on it again in our youth studies. The split of the kingdom of Israel was specifically caused by not protecting the marriage unit from outside ungodly influences. That's why the kingdom split. And we read it right here. But King Solomon loved, verse 1, King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Even as they were turning his heart away, he chose them over God. And that was, that was the point, choosing foreign ideas over love for God. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. This is what it's all about. It's about remaining loyal to God for all that he did for us, all that we just rehearsed through Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's all about remaining pure. Dropping down to verse 9. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. 
and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, because you allowed that to come into your relationship and it turned you and it changed you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the name, the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. The split of the kingdom of Israel happened because Solomon was not faithful to the covenant. And Solomon allowed foreign influences and foreign, he, he allowed it to come into to, to, to them to the marriage covenant that he had. The marriage covenants, I suppose. Let's go to Deuteronomy 23. Because God, we ask the question when we see, we read through some of these scriptures of God saying, destroy, destroy these people. That doesn't sound like the loving God I know. But God's concern is purity. God's concern is the sanctity and purity of his people. And if something could come in and damage that, then, as we've heard, there's an order for things. And we're going to see here that it had nothing to do with their nationality. It had to do with who they worshipped. It had nothing to do with their nationality. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. So an Ammonite and a Moabite completely banned from the assembly. Now, I haven't taken the time to count down to where we're going to now. Perhaps it was tens, and we can probably, that'd probably be a good conversation for maybe in the after sermon discussion. But let's go to Ruth 1. Ruth 1. A Moabite shall not enter into the assembly of the Lord. But we see a young Moabitess named Ruth. Chapter 1, chapter one verse 15. And her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said, Look, your sister has gone back to her people and to her gods. We scan over that quickly when we get to the, the story of Ruth. But Orpah went back to her gods. When the, when their, when the marriage died, when the, their husbands were killed and they died, she slunk back and went back to what she knew. She, wasn't, she didn't become faithful to God, faithful to the God of Israel. She went back to her people. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. And the Lord so do to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. And then jumping quickly over to chapter 4. So Boaz, verse 13, took Ruth. 
and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. This was someone who by law was not supposed to be in the assembly. But she, made, she wanted to follow the God of Israel and then was allowed, not just allowed to be in the assembly, she married into the line of David and the line of Jesus Christ. And we see that down in verse 17. There is a son born to Naomi, and they shall call his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Normally prohibited from being anywhere near the covenant people, she became an ancestor of David and an ancestor of Christ because she committed to following God and his laws. That's how important, that's how important God is in the center of a Christian, of a godly marriage. Let's go to the book of Malachi. We studied this a couple of years ago in great detail. Let's go there quickly and remind ourselves how seriously God takes marriage and the family between a mother and a father, between a man and a woman, regardless of what it says on your birth certificate or on your driver's license or, or anywhere else. Malachi chapter 2. Verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in, in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. So, What's being described here is something that God not only calls holy, but that he loves. This is something very specific that God, that God holds, holds near and dear to him. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this thing, being awake and aware. He, he knew what was happening. He knew what he was doing. This wasn't something he got conned into, being awake and aware. Following a follow, marrying into and following a foreign god. Yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts? And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor will receive it with goodwill from your hands. Added that in there for context. Let's go down to verse... Let's continue here in verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. This is the one, this is the thing that God calls holy and that he loves. There are many, of course. But this is specifically mentioned here that God pays attention to this. He pays attention to how we treat each other in marriage and how we treat each other in family. Because it's the institution he loves. Why? Because it was the very first thing he created when, after creation. It was the very first thing he instituted. And God says, I watched you deal treacherously. I watched you deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them one. Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Let's skip over to chapter 3 quickly. Verse 1. So therefore, in light of all of that, behold, 
I will send my messenger. Because this is so important, because it is the, the holy institution that I love and that I watch carefully how my people, are, how my people in the, these, this institution of marriage and family, how they interact, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come, suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. And then finally in Malachi, chapter 4 to the end, verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. Restoring the family unit was important to God because it was the basis it was the basis of a godly society. It was the basis of his covenant. It was the basis of, of what he was trying to build. We know this. We've heard this innumerable. It's, it's getting to be where we've heard it innumerable times. But we can't tire of hearing that because we must never forget it. And Bill 89 is clear evidence that it is easy to forget. If we stop reading, if we stop rehearsing these things, it is easy to forget. We'll go through that and go, oh, there's a new child uh, safety and youth, youth law. That's nice. And we'll read stuff about, about how the most depraved of society really badly treat their children. And you know what? That is, absolutely, that is absolutely wrong. But you don't change what is good for those few that are bad. You hold them accountable to the laws that are already written there. We don't need to change the laws. We just need to enforce them if they were that interested in that. Let's go to Matthew 19. We, we've, we've done a cursory examination of the breakdown of the family unit over the course of time through biblical time. And that was the first thing God created after creation. And then it did nothing but, God's people did nothing but dishonor it through the course of time. Matthew 19. Make no mistake. Marriage and family is central to our faith. Central to our faith. Verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let no man, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so, from the beginning, it was not so. Divorce was never part of God's original intent for marriage. It wasn't. But, and that's because a God-centered marriage for believers was a lives-long contract. Now, I know we're all in, we all have 
friends and family, and we've all been through situations. We've come through those things. God, through baptism, we are, we are forgiven of, of all of those, all of the history that we go through. From the point of your baptism on, from the point of when you commit here and go, we move forward, that's when we continue with this. That's when we, we honor and commit, commit to this covenant. A God-centered marriage for believers is a lives-long contract. Divorce for believers became an allowance, became an allowance in specific circumstances with specific conditions. But as God said here, as Christ said, from the beginning it wasn't so. He created marriage. He didn't create divorce. He created marriage because it is the foundation of the family, foundation of society, foundation of a godly society. Marriage is so central to the Christian walk that there's even an expectation to maintain the marriage when only one is a believer. That's how important marriage is to God. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. To the verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not, is not to divorce his wife. This is, this is two believers. This is two believers. But to the, re, to the rest, I not the Lord say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And we know lots of situations where we have single uh, married people with one person in the, in the faith and one not in the faith. That, is, that marriage is so important to God that he, he asks us to maintain that. A woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. For if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? By maintaining that sanctity of marriage, we're actually offering an opportunity for the unbeliever to become part of the faith, for God to work through the believer, for the unbeliever to become part of the faith. Marriage is so central to our walk. We see this expectation that God expects us to maintain that. Let's go to Ephesians 5, and we'll see why. Ephesians 5. Why is marriage so important to our faith? Why was it the, one of the, was the first thing God created after creation? Why is it formed the basis of all society? Of a, of a godly society. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as this church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So we see here, and we've gone over this many times, the marriage covenant depicts and reflects the covenant between God's people and Christ, between the church and Christ. So much so, we drop down to verse 32, Paul continues, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. One of the great mysteries is the covenant God has with his people. And we, we talked about it here today with the Peculiar People Youth Study. And how this covenant from the very beginning, Gentiles and non-believers are being grafted in through that very covenant, through the church, because of their with access to the Holy Spirit and the new covenant that was so well put here by our young people. And it is the one of the great mysteries of God's plan and is explained through the institution of marriage. That is why marriage is it, part of the reason why marriage is so central to our faith. Because it's really about more than this. It's about our relationship and our covenant with God. Let's go to Micah 7. So much so, this great mystery. That the covenant people become our family. The covenant peoples become our family. Verse 5, Micah 7. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Therefore, I will look to God, and I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. When we see, when we have a separation in understanding what happens here is families turn against each other and we've i'm sure many of us can can attest to that let's go to luke 12 and see where i'm going with this luke 12 verse 49 we're talking about our covenant with God being pictured by marriage and family and how when we become part of the covenant people, these covenant people become our family. These covenant people become our family. I came, verse 49, Luke 12, to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. If you saw the Bible study this week, we, we covered that. 
Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. These sorts of things separate the sheep from the goats. These these show us who our family really is. We may be presented with a situation where our faith will be called into, into question. Where does our faith lie? Where does our faith lie? It may require us to separate from an earthly family to maintain the sanctity of our covenant with God. Matthew 12. Because this institution of marriage points to Christ and the church. Matthew 12, verse 46. While he was still talking to the multitudes, that's Matthew 12, verse 46, Behold, his mothers and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you, speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my father and my mother. Much to Premier Wynn's disdain, family is central to the believer. The concept of family is central to the believer. And no law, no law can change the fact that faith is central to a believer. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that we understand this? Let's go to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. Verse 1, now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, 